Dr. C here. Before we begin, I'd like to make sure that you're aware that this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp is a leading provider of online therapy, and they provide video, phone, or live chat sessions with a licensed professional therapist. It's affordable, and you can connect with your therapist within 48 hours. Now, as a special offer to our surviving narcissism listeners, they'll offer a 10% discount for your first month of professional therapy. All you have to do is go to betterhelp.com, that's betterhelp.com slash surviving narcissism podcast. I know that many of you would find online therapy to be quite life-changing, and so go to betterhelp.com slash surviving narcissism podcast, and many thanks to the people at BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Surviving Narcissism Podcast with your host, Dr. Les Carter. I'm Michaela, the program director, and in today's episode, Dr. Carter will discuss how to spot a toxic narcissist, featuring Dr. Carrie McAvoy. Well, good day, Team Healthy. I'm so pleased to have you here once again today. And you know that one of the things I like to do is bring you some people who are on the front line talking about our topic with narcissism and um, and the impact they can have on your life. And I have a special guest with me here today. And uh, this is someone that I've become recently familiar with. Her, her name is Dr. Carrie McAvoy. Uh, Dr. McAvoy, first, thank you so much for being here with us here on our Surviving Narcissism podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Carter. So much. It's a pleasure to meet you as well. Um, I feel honored. Okay. Well, and, and it's it's mutual. It just please know that. Now, you have written uh, on this topic of narcissism and specifically about toxic individuals. Uh, in fact, you have a, a new book uh, called Love You More. And is that a very new release? Is, am I correct on that? It is. I published it about a year ago, last okay. year, February, yes. Love you more. And then you're very active on various media sites, uh, YouTube, Instagram. Uh, tell us about what you have going on there. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, I I uh, was widowed in 2015 and, and ended up getting in a second marriage that was really toxic and, and uh, was shocking to me uh, what happened. Here I thought as a psychologist, I knew a lot about illness and dysfunction and relationships and then to find myself a victim of abuse. So when I got out of it to make sense of it, I wrote the story, Love You More, trying to partly just to put put it into a perspective and, and understand what happened and why it happened. But as I was doing that, then I began to connect with people on, on, on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube around their stories and discovered that there's a lot of us who experience this type of dysfunctional, harmful relationship. So it's just been an incredible journey of my own of discovery and making sense, but also really finding out that I'm part of a community that's experiencing this as well. You know, so many people that are in our profession, uh, you'd like to think, well, uh, the reason I'm in the profession is because I perfected this whole thing and uh, I've got it all figured out. Well, sure enough, we are trying to figure it out, but uh, I know I consider myself to be a, a fellow sojourner and uh, clearly you consider yourself to be that. And, and if you can put an arm of encouragement around other individuals as you talk about what you've learned, then all the better. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's what I'm hearing you say. Uh, been there, done that. Now let's talk about how we can learn from this. 
Yeah, exactly. I think that what what is under not understood about narcissistic abuse, which makes it different from other forms of abuse, is that there is a deception. And that we think we've met a real person and we haven't, we've met a facade or a persona. And so we we begin to build a relationship on that foundation, thinking this is this is something authentic, not realizing that we're being manipulated and exploited. And you're right, it, it, there is a lot of us that this, this is happening to, and it's, it's very harmful. And it's, it's helpful to, one, to be able to share our stories so that we know we're not alone, but it also helps to validate our experience to know that we're not crazy or, or something's wrong with us for that happening. And you're right, as a psychologist, it was, it was very humbling for me to have that happen, a very embarrassing. But if I'm feeling that way, then I know I'm not the only one who feels that way. So for me to share my story was took a lot of courage for me. Um, it was very, very difficult. But I kept thinking, this is going to help others because if they can see themselves, is that even a psychologist can't prevent this from happening. Maybe they can help find more grace and forgiveness for themselves for the, it happening to them. Oh, and your words resonate so strongly. And and again, I, I just appreciate where you're coming from now. Okay, we're, we're using this word toxicity, a, a toxic person. And uh, I, actually, I went on your website and I picked up a, a checklist that you came up with so that you could uh, identify a toxic person. I want to go through some of those with me, uh, with you here in just a moment. But um, when you think, when you use that word toxic, as it relates to a, a, a person in, engaging in relational issues, what do you mean by that? Yeah, clinically, if I if someone came into the office, I wouldn't diagnose them as toxic. I would say that they had some form of a personality disorder, probably like maybe they are higher on the narcissism scale, or maybe they're showing a lot of antisocial personality disorder um, problems. Maybe they might even have some borderline personality features, but there's not really a good general word to capture the difficulties some people have with managing normal ego functions, normal things like showing good judgment or having restraint or knowing how to deal with emotions. So toxic to me is just a, a nice way of capturing a group of people that may not have had their egos mature quite to the point that would make them easygoing or cooperative or a good team player. You know, um, I, I used the term the false self, and that, that's a very uh, common term we use as we discuss the narcissist. And just listening to you, uh, would it be fair to say, and I'd like to hear your comments on this, that, um, th that this toxicity begins very early on in, a, in that individual's life they've learned that they can't afford to be real or authentic or seek out help. And so they have to compensate for all of that. I mean, what, where do you see is uh, some of the origins of this as being? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I don't think we have the final answers on this. I, I was able to hear Dr. Gregory Lester this last year uh, in a continuing edu education course. And he was one of the DSM five committee members, uh, analyzing the traits of a personality disorder and what should belong in the DSM-5 and what doesn't. And he he says that it's a biosocial problem, that there's a high rate of concordance among twins of narcissism. I think it's upwards to close to 70% of twins will have both have narcissistic traits. But that, yet there's also a, a social component, the sort of a nurturing component, not just a nature component. So I'm not for sure exactly what the combination is or what triggers it in some people but 
I was I was trained in more of a developmental model, meaning that I see people on a, a from infancy to to adulthood, and that for some of us, things that should have occurred, like learning how to manage anger or learning how to deal with really being sad or learning how to say no to something we really want to do or don't want to do, um, but for some of us, we don't we don't fully mature in those areas, and we have areas of weakness. I almost see it like a continuum of weak to strong and some of us are really strong maybe with showing insight into ourselves and others are super weak maybe we're very empathic some of us are very empathic others of us may be very weak if some of it's i think you can also refer to this emotional intelligence as an mm -hmm. eq oh, very much, issue yeah. yeah that some of us have really low eqs the false persona that the way what you were referring to gets developed i think in some of us as a way to manage the shame if we're weak and we know that maybe we can't show up quite in the way that seems to be quote unquote normal, we might then develop a self that we think others want to see, at least makes good first impressions without realizing that we're, you can't build a relationship on that, that that's not going to last very yeah. long. You used the word shame, which is a word that many of us in the profession will use. One of the presumptions that I make is that whether it's conscious and usually it's more subconscious, uh, deep down on the inside, narcissists carry what I refer to as their own self-loathing. Mm -hmm. Now, the vast majority of them would just roll their eyes and say, Carter, I don't know what you've been smoking, but no, that's not the case at all. In fact, they come across as being very impressed with themselves, etc. But then when we think, well, wait a minute, if you're so impressed with who you are, why do you have to cover everything up? Yeah. And why are you so absurdly defensive? And why do you have to deflect when someone says, hey, let's talk about something? And it can be something so simple. And uh, they're extremely thin skinned, etc. And uh, the, the answer, at least to me, and I suspect to you is, uh, they don't want anybody to know who they really are. Uh, they yeah. don't want anybody to know what their hurts and pains and difficulties are. That's what I refer to as the self-loathing, but they want to maintain this veneer that says, I've got it together. Of course you don't, but I do. I mean, is that consistent with what you see as part of, as part of this toxicity? I do. I do. I, I, I think there are, all of us have a core of shame. I think that's just sort of a developmental stage that we have to we have to do something with. I mean, I was thinking of Eric Erickson's second stage of autonomy versus um, shame, and yes. it's it's a, an essential and it's one of the emotions that we we experience is the most difficult to process. It's very it undoes us. We really dislike it. I think it's a challenge for all of us to manage. I also think there's a second group, though, that gets mixed into the narcissistic group, and that's the antisocial personality disorder group. I don't think that they feel a lot of shame. That group, I think, is a little more callous. And I think I think at their core is they've been it's been theorized they're more empty there or I I experience them as more bored, restless. They just feel flat. There's not a lot of joy, not a lot of pleasure in their life. And so they're, they're more pleasure seeking, and they'll do hurtful things to sort of get a like a get a, a rush. But yeah, so the narcissist to me is is trying to hide. And then the antisocial personality disorder is trying to get a thrill. And then you get the group who sort of sits in between both of those and is managing both issues. Okay. Uh, some are trying to hide. Some are trying to get a thrill. Uh, mm -hmm. I love the way you put that. And um, bottom line is they're constantly in compensation mode. Yes. Uh, uh, you, you, when you say empty on the inside, there's just something that's missing there. 
<laughs> and uh, then they're seeking that narcissistic supply. You exist to make me feel better right now. Yes, exactly, exactly. They're both of them don't have the their scaffolding inside to cope with these uncomfortable feelings. So the way that they cope with them is they address it externally with us in relationship with us, which okay. then becomes a problem for all of them of, of us who's around them. Now, one of the things that I like to do is I like to make sure that we're educating our public well uh, as far as what to look for. And so you actually, in fact, on your uh, website, and uh, your website is uh, what now? It's kerrymacavoyphd.com. Yeah, okay, because I, I knew it had your name, but I couldn't remember. It was like, okay, Kerry uh, McAvoy, and it's M-C-A-V-O-Y-PhD.com. Uh, uh, you, you actually have a, a checklist of things that uh, uh, that would indicate that a person might be uh, toxic. And I want to run through some of these with you. And, and what I did is I, I, I went through some of these um, uh, things that you wrote down there. And then there's kind of a, a category if we want to put these into. For example, you mentioned on the uh, uh, one of the first ones you mentioned that uh, toxic people, has your partner ever confided that as a kid, they used to set fires or harm animals? And, and I, I uh, wrote a note to myself, gross insensitivity towards the vulnerable. Mm -hmm. uh, what's that all about? Yeah, well, and I don't know if it's still used as a diagnostic criteria or not, but it used to be that there was a triad of behavior that you would see in individuals who had antisocial personality disorders. Now, as a child, you wouldn't diagnose them with that. They would be diagnosed with conduct disorder. Right. But somebody who is showing sort of this, I agree with you, it is sort of this massive uh, struggle with empathy, massive ability to recognize other things, especially weaker people, weaker things in their life as vulnerable. They struggle with that. And so they would see them having a, they would have set, be setting fires, um, wetting the bed, and then they would be, um, what was this, the second fires? Harming said, animals. Yeah, uh, harming animals, exactly, yeah. harming others, yeah. So there would be this triad of behaviors that you would see that would be would be alarming and concerning if you were seeing that. Yeah, and uh, and and it's just kind of the implication is they just don't think or feel beyond themselves. Right. And there's a there's a real strong uh, I, I use the word insensitivity, but there's a real strong undertow of anger and right. I hate I hate the world in front of me. And I got to take it out on someone. Or, or it could just be getting back to that that thrill seeking that they just enjoy watching things get hurt. You'll see that sort of sadistic side of them, and and how it shows up in adulthood is you'll see them do cruel or mean things. They may may make jokes at other people's expense and not understand why that would be hurtful or inconsiderate or inappropriate. But you'll just see this this kind of this ruthlessness about them. By the way, another thing that just uh, it, it's it's to me it's a huge red flag, but it's kind of uh, trails off of what you're saying is um, some of the uh, entertainment themes that people can get caught up in. Uh, from time to time, I'll see a, uh, a commercial on these cage fighting kind of things, mm -hmm. or I, I just cringe when I see uh, things about the, uh, the video games. Uh, and it's just about who am I going to kill? And, uh, you know, and, and some people are just drawn towards that, like, oh, man, that's cool. Like, oh, I know. No, I know. I know. Yeah, there's there's those that they're sort of the like got shoes that that people have on YouTube where they'll set somebody up and it's not very funny, very funny. There was one that was going around around Halloween where parents were telling the kids that all the candy was gone, that it gotten stolen and then taping their children's reaction to this. And then there, it was wildly popular. And to me, it's 
I, I don't know how much yeah. more cruel you could be to do something like that. Yeah. It's just very, yeah. Teasing kids uh, and just making them feel badly and then laughing that you right. got them. Right. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a, mm. okay. Yeah. Now, another thing that you mentioned is uh, these toxic individuals uh, might dominate a conversation, making it difficult for you to get a word in edgewise. And uh, you just mentioned a, minute, a moment ago, lack of empathy. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about why you put that on the list. Yeah, well, it, it has to do with their difficulty with seeing other people as people. They, they don't tend to see, recognize your humanity or my humanity. And, and the only person, if you imagine, if you imagine the world's stage, they see themselves as the only actor on the stage and the spotlight's on them. So they then tend to hog the stage. Yeah. Um, and, and they don't even have a good sense of themselves doing that. They would say, if you ask them, what percentage of time do you think you talk to I talk? They would say, oh, I think it was fair. That's to the degree that they're blind, that they really don't recognize other people around them. So you sort of see this lack of, of um, just observation and reflection in the way that they handle relationships. Yeah, and, and that's that's pretty pervasive too, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, it, and to the point of being astonishing that they have such low self-awareness. Like yeah, that. yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. Now, and it, I, is, you, you, it is fun to ask them. I mean, to really literally ask them. So how much of the percentage of time do you think you've talked to I talked? And you're going to hear a percentage that you'll think, oh my goodness, you have no insight into this. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I'll get people that'll, uh, in fact, I've been on record as saying that uh, a very high percentage of uh, narcissistic individuals, particularly the further down the spectrum they go, just uh, you, you can't really expect that there's going to be much change because they have such low insight. And I, I don't get a lot, but from time to time, somebody will give me some pushback on that. It's like, no, everybody can change. Uh, they just need to try hard enough. And with some people, it's like, nope, not going to happen. Uh, not interested. Uh, couldn't care less. Uh, I don't even know what you're talking about. You're the one that needs to change. Yeah, here's the other thing that I just learned recently. And again, it came out of um, Dr. Lester's work. He said that, and I always knew that we had categories in the DSM, I'm sorry, we had conditions in the DSM-5 and we had disorders in the DSM-5. And I knew that the DSM-5, I'm sorry, the DSM-4 had the, the disorders were under the developmental category, like along with IQ problems, with um, autism, other types of inherently neurological conditions. But the reason is because disorders are part of neurological hardwiring. They don't see themselves as having a problem. Right. Conditions are things that we suffer with. I mean, when you're depressed, you you feel something's wrong. When you have anxiety, you know you're anxious or worried or something's wrong. But when you have a personality disorder, you don't recognize something is wrong. And what's wrong is everybody around you has the problem because they have a problem with you. But that's why they say, you have a problem. I don't have the problem, I'm fine, I like myself. So no, they don't tend to have a lot of self-awareness, which you're right. How do you change something if you can't see that it's problematic? We tend to only change things that cause us pain. And if it's not causing them pain, then they have no motivation to do anything about it. I don't know if I've heard anybody put it quite that succinctly. I mean, that's a great way to look at it. Um... On our website, survivingnarcissism.tv, we offer various courses one of them is entitled, This Is Me, Establishing Boundaries Despite the Controllers in Your Life. Inside each of my courses, I break it down into modules, and then each module consists of various lessons that have a video, written materials, and questions for personal reflection. And inside This Is Me, we talk about 
uh, defining who you want to be and then staying inside that definition. We discuss assertiveness skills, how to stay strong without being defensive. If you would be interested in, in, in enrolling in this course or any of the others that we have, go to our website, click the courses link, and you'll receive all the information for how you can enroll. I hope you would find them to be quite helpful. And now back to Surviving Narcissism with Dr. Carter. Well, and then another thing, too, that you mentioned, um, that uh, people who are considered toxic um, uh, often display rapid mood shifts and appear childish or immature. Uh, how does that play out? Yeah, yeah, that has to do with e emotional regulation. So one of the things we need to learn as a child, if you go back to see a toddler, they don't get their way, what do they do? They melt down. You may be in the grocery store trying to check out. You've got the screaming kid who wants candy. But as we mature, we should learn to, to know how to cope with the things not going our way or not getting our way. And what happens for some of these individuals is they don't learn these skills. They still have this inability to sort of regulate intense emotions. And so we'll see this rapid, rapid shift. So adults tend to, we may feel the shift inside, may something happens that's shocking. You may feel the sudden feeling of rage, but you know, no, this is inappropriate. I'm not going to express this. I'm going to process it. Maybe I'm going to go take a walk. But when you don't have that internal scaffolding again, then you you react. You'll be very you'll be very moody. You'll shift fast, and and you'll display it because you don't have the wherewithal inside of you to do something different with it. I'm just personalizing this. Let's suppose I'm around a a family member, and they say something that is pretty insensitive, or it's like, where did you come up with that? And uh, one of the options that I have in a moment like that is just pop right on out and say, well, you're stupid, or where'd you come up with that? Or no, that's not the way it happened. Or wait a minute, well, calling someone stupid or uh, being accusing, that doesn't work. And then I might also think, well, the bottom line is, if you hang around me long enough, you're going to find out that I have my flaws too. And so you, you want to have that sense that says, yeah, we're all human, and your humanity is showing up just like mine is in there too. And 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 they don't, they don't think like that. Uh, those kind of thoughts just do not run through their mind at all. It's just, if they feel it, it comes right out and yep. it's your fault. Yeah. Yeah. You're making a very good point. There is an intersection with empathy. So not only do they have the ability to sort of hold themselves, contain themselves appropriately and not just react because something hurts, which, so the more mature your ego is, the more you're able to do that. But you also then at the same time, recognize that those around you may not have meant it. Maybe they didn't realize the way it came out or how it came across to you. Maybe they'd even know that they used touch something tender inside of you. So you have the ability to recognize this is a human being I need to treat with respect. But when you lack empathy and you don't see the other person as human or instead they're more of an object, and on top of it, you don't have any ability to sort of restrain yourself, then you're going to be very moody, dangerously moody. Well, this being an imperfect world, there are going to be all sorts of stimulations that'll uh, throw you into that if you're so inclined. Well, and, and another thing you mentioned on your website there, you mentioned that uh, these toxic individuals are very prone toward retaliation or they want to punish you. And, and again, we go back and say, well, even if you disappoint me, is it really my job to pound you into the ground? And some of these people think, yeah, yeah, it really is. That's what I'm going to do. Watch this. Yeah, this is the one I think is probably the saddest one, and that is that their worldview is inherently different than ours. That it is not, they don't see the world as 
fair and equitable and that we all have our own path and that we'll get to where we're going they view it like war like a zero-sum game that so when you get ahead your success then is a direct takeaway from mine or when you hurt me that you somehow directly offended me and directly uh, uh you know took something from me so then they get revenge they they get even they tend to hold grudges and really retaliate and it's sad because the truth of the world is we don't live in a world like that we live in a world where a lot of our we a lot of us can be successful and do well your success does not take away from mine but they don't see it that way it's very competitive very competitive very jealous that's in fact the dsm-5 lists jealousy is one of the core uh, attributes of narcissism okay yeah, uh, it's, it's like, well, if you have something and I want it, then uh, something's not fair. Or if I have something, I don't want you to have it. Right, right. Yeah. And it, the other, this is the other awful thing that happens is they are attracted to people who look good, make them look good. So they may find your success something that gr- they gravitate towards you for it because they want maybe they want to say that they're associated with you. But once they're in a relationship with you, it no longer is a benefit. It's a place of tension and competition. Now they resent you for your success. Yeah, I I remember speaking with a woman who said, um, I know there's no such thing as a perfect person, but my father was perfect. And uh, but I know he wasn't, but he really kind of was. And uh, as she was saying that, I I just uh, and and she wound up just being a a grossly um, just just haughty. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, well, if I can find someone in my world who meets that uh, idealized standards and then I latch onto them, that means I have it too. And yeah. so they can have sort of that backwards way of um, putting you down. It's like, of course, you don't know people like that and you don't know people like me, but I do. And uh, there, there's that ongoing condescension that they mm-hmm. carry with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you got to watch out for that because it's like it's a from the, I think that was one of the things I because I'm such a cooperative person by nature it really blindsided me that there are people who would who would see what I do or who I am as a threat and that I need to be aware and conscious of that and 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 sort of assess someone's motives be a little more astute about that you know um one of the um the things that research has actually shown is that uh, part of part of the healthy personality includes multiple characteristics but right at the top of the list is the characteristic of conscientiousness uh, making sure that i uh, conduct myself in light of who you are and there's a courtesy there's an element of empathy there's a, a willingness to blend and harmonize and you mentioned uh, at the top that, that you kind of got caught up thinking, well, that's the way I think. Therefore, I'm sure they would appreciate it. And turned out it didn't work out that well. Right. But uh, narcissists don't have that conscientious nature. Uh, as uh, you know, they, they don't really factor in who you are and why you feel what you do. It's like uh, you're either on my team or you're not on my team. Yeah, yeah. And actually, they, they say that you they hope you're on their team, but they actually their team is the team of one. There is no one on their team. <laughs> well, the, the subordinates and flying monkeys and, that's right. and all of yeah, that. The, that they that's, may that's have really they may be Batman with a sidekick, but there's nobody that's <laughs> they're not sharing that floor with you. Okay, you made a good point on that one. Well, and then um, another thing uh, you mentioned here that uh the, the, that toxic person uh, doesn't make self-initiated efforts to repair damaged relationships. And in, in other words, I'm not responsible for any problems I've got, which by default means you are. 
they just don't they don't feel the need to say, hey, I can tell that that that, that didn't go over well. Help educate me. Help me understand. Yeah, that's that goes back to the fact that they don't they're, they're the center of the stage. The spotlight's on them. There is no one else on the stage, so therefore everything they do is okay. So if you have a reaction to that, then the reaction it has to be your problem. Can't be their problem because oh, no. they're good the way that they are. Again, they have no empathy in the fact that they were you know the way they're impacting you. And then when you go back to the unconscious core of shame, to have have to get soft like that and to admit maybe they made an error would have that that kicks them into them having to own that maybe they're more vulnerable that they want to be and that defensive structure doesn't allow them to go there so they they're really quick to defend that and you can't even it's you can't even approach that with them you can't even it's not even a vernacular it's not part of the way that they see the world they're so well defended that's back to why they don't change they're so well defended but you can't approach this issue to have it make sense, to have them have more empathy into what's going on, which is really, again, heartbreaking. Well, you want to know, I'll tell you a funny little story. I, I think it was maybe in the first grade and uh, we had a teacher who uh, we were in uh, some sort of art thing and, and she asked, um, uh, would you draw a picture of your favorite thing? So um, I thought, well, that's easy. So I, I uh, drew this big uh, thing that uh, was brown and kind of like that shape and all. And she came over and said, um, "Did is that a mountain that you're drawing? And I just felt so defeated. I said, no, it's chocolate cake. <laughs> and, and I just felt terrible because it's like I tried to draw chocolate cake. I'm like, okay, I'm not, I'm not uh, the second coming of Rembrandt, but uh, can't you tell it's a chocolate cake? The good thing is she took me and, and she could just tell that I felt deflated. And she said, you know, uh, now that you mentioned it, it could. And she said, why don't we put a couple of candles on there? And it, it'll maybe make it look like it's a birthday cake, which is uh, perfect. He's like, yeah, I, 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 who knows? I may have just had a birthday. And she was very gentle and she was very kind and uh, kind of redirected me and said, it's okay. If you and I have a, a misunderstanding, then uh, we can figure it out. And I felt so relieved. Yeah. And th that's a simple little illustration, but yeah. uh, empathy and redirecting in a healthy kind of way uh, is something that can be trained in a kid. And the implication is, uh, narcissists either uh, they didn't have that experience, or if they did, they didn't. Uh, it didn't settle well with them. Yeah. Uh, they hear judgment, and they yes. hear grades, and so they've decided. Well, before you can do that to me, I'm going to do it to you. Right. So. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and the way that, you know, this is, they found this over and over in research. It, it's, it's, it's come up so many times that when we make an error, people feel this, find us the softest and connect with us the best. How sad to have a group of people think that being imperfect is off-putting when actually it's our imperfections that we connect the most powerfully around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I mentioned is that intimacy uh, mm -hmm. is built upon knowing the worst about each other and loving each other through it. Yes. And, uh, and, and saying, I know that you've heard on this, uh, tell me about it. And then I'll share with you some of my experiences and there can be that, uh, that vulnerability. What is it about narcissists that, uh, that scares that, that, that vulnerability and openness scares them so much? Yeah, they fear rejection and abandonment. I think that they thought that they were really truly known, nobody would love them. Now, where did that come from? I don't know. 
but somehow you know, I think that that's back to that core issue at ages roughly nine months to two years old, you know, the autonomy versus shame that somehow if I spill my milk or, or drop something or make a mess that I'm going to be found out and nobody's going to love me. Now, did that actually happen? Maybe. Or maybe this is just a person just doesn't have the ability to absorb that their environment is accepting. I don't know, but some somehow that fear of being seen, yeah, just it just didn't, it doesn't click, it doesn't work. So they then hide, they really, really hide who they are. And yet that's where we connect. Like you said, that's that's where intimacy is really found. It's me seeing your brokenness resonating with my brokenness and around that and feeling a tenderness towards that. And then finding we can share that safe space together. They don't go there. They really don't go there. I felt like in my relationship with the narcissistic person that I was that I had known in that second marriage that it was like we were playing the hokey pokey. I'd put my right arm in and he'd put his <laughs> left leg in maybe, yeah. but he never put his whole self in. And I could yeah. feel that, that that was missing in our relationship. Yeah. J just enough to keep the game going and that's mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so before we wrap up, I, I want to uh, kind of focus on the cleaner alternative. Um, we're talking about people who have toxicity. And one of the things that I so emphasize is we can't allow that person to set our pace. So if you've had exposure to that toxic individual, but you're wanting to move towards a more safe uh, manner of life, what kind of uh, priorities or adjustments would be necessary for an individual to get to that place? Well, it depends who the toxic person is. I mean, if it's a partner, that's really tough because anytime you engage in conflict or anything that's controversial, they're, they tend to, they're antagonistic by nature. So it's going to be challenging. They're not going to want to look for resolution and closure. So I would really then guard people to become more self-protective and careful in those relationships, maybe and consider the wisdom of being in the relationship. If it's a family member or, or a coworker or a neighbor or something, then we have to figure out ways to get along hospitably without really risking a lot of ourselves or our hearts with these individuals. But it's tricky. It's really tricky. Yeah, and I, I consider it to be so necessary for each of us, especially when we have these people in our life, to have a, a well-conceived um, definition about yeah. who I'm going to be. Yeah. And then if that other person <laughs> is in a bad mood, like you say, they're argumentative and all like that, I'm thinking, wait a minute, uh, argumentative is not on my list of preferred ingredients. I don't feel the need to match pitch with you. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's easier said than done, though, isn't it? Um, yeah, because they're so good at hooking you. I mean, they yeah. know they're they're antagonistic by nature, and they know how to to create drama antagonism with you to cut, start arguments with you. So you have to really watch out for that 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 you have a good sense of that and a separation from it that you know how to withdraw. I often urge people to, to plan out interactions, like figure out what you want to say, practice it so that you're yeah. ready, so that when it happens, you can then say that. I, I refer to that just rehearsing in advance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you have a family gathering and you have that uh, uncle over there who's always criticizing and uh, sometimes uh, tries to goad, goad you, it's like, okay, when I'm around Uncle Joe over there, what am I going to do? Who am I going to be? And uh, exactly, because you can't predict everything, but you know some of the trends and patterns that might be there and you can kind of think, okay, when that shows up, who am I going to be? Exactly, exactly. Well, what we're saying basically is there are some individuals who just simply don't get it. And uh, then uh, not only that, they feel no need to go get it. 
Uh, but instead, it's like, no, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much uh, the standard bearer here. So if there's a problem here, it must be you. And uh, people like yourself and like me, our task is to say, well, wait a minute, let's let's get ourselves educated on this. There's there's something dreadfully inappropriate going on here. Knowledge is power. And as we're able to become knowledgeable about this, then we're able to move forward in a healing way. Exactly. It gives us more choices. I mean, if you understand the dynamics, then you have more options yourself of what you're going to do the next time. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're talking today with Dr. Karen McAvoy, uh, the author of the book, uh, Love You More. Great topic, a great title, by the way. And, and you're just right down the highway from me. You're in Austin. I know, I know. Right up I-35 in, in Waco. Now, you're originally from Grand Rapids, though, right? I am. Michigan. I am. So, yeah. Yeah. A Michigander all the way down here in Texas then. So, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you know, there's yeah. the old bumper sticker. I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as fast as I could. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love living here. It's been really wonderful. And Austin is beautiful. I was I, I had this picture of rolling tumbleweeds, and then I got here and found it's lush and green with yeah. hills. It's just beautiful. Well, this part of the, what we call the hill country here. So yeah, glad yeah. you're here. So yeah, thank okay. you, thank you. I have to tell you the title to "Love You More," where that came from, is that yeah. I I would say "Love You," and he goes, "No, I love you more." He would actually get into a competition. <laughs> even then yeah, that's right <laughs> as opposed to saying why thank you it's like that's well let me explain to you why i'm better that's right exactly exactly <laughs> oh my God. Oh, that, it just makes you shake your head it's like is there nothing they just can't no, ruin? no. <laughs> nope so, even love it's loving somebody's a competition <laughs> like never mind <laughs> that's right forget it sorry i said that oh i tell you well dr mcavoy thank you so much for being my guest here and uh, i know that uh, people are going to get real good uh, benefit from having listened to you and i encourage you to look her up on uh, her webpage. we're going to have the information below here so that you can uh, access dr mcavoy uh you're a real treasure and i hope this is not the last time we have the chance to meet and and, and discuss things together so thanks once again for being with us Thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. This is a delight. I love it. And I'm so glad to meet you as well. Thank you. And team healthy, keep learning. And uh, I will see you guys next time. I hope you have a good rest of the week. Thank you for listening. Surviving Narcissism is the product of many years of work done by Dr. Les Carter. Dr. Carter is a best-selling author and therapist with more than 40 years of experience specializing in anger management and narcissistic personality disorder. You can find more content from Dr. Carter on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Surviving Narcissism, as well as on his website, survivingnarcissism.tv. Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We are so glad to have you on Team Healthy.